Aqua Lads and Aqua Lasses. Welcome back to the Aqua Cave podcast feed for the debut of a brand new show. I know, I promised I wouldn't do anything like this, but damn it, I really wanted to talk about something that wasn't wrestling. And uh, I've got a, I got a unique, con- well, I don't know about a unique concept, but I think I have a fun introduction to a bland concept. Let's put it that way. The show is called Top Man. All right. What's with all these shows called Man? Man. Well, we talk all the time in the Aqua Cave about brand synergy. And we have a couple of shows already named after Mega Man villains. So why not do one more? Especially when you consider the fact that this is going to be a countdown slash list based show. The first one is a top 10 list. Uh, like they will be. Top 5, top 8, top 7. It doesn't matter how many tops. So that's why we call it Top Man. And of course, when you consider that in Mega Man 3, Mega Man did battle with the infamous, always dancing Top Man, I think it explains itself. Today's Top Ick. <laughs> Look out for the top puns, folks. They're not going anywhere. But seriously, today's Top Ick. Top 10 Unpopular Cinema Opinions. Now, I will freely admit that I have I have a lot of opinions about a lot of things, but not in a way that's supposed to be, uh, you know, violent or attacking or anything like that. These are just personal opinions of mine, and I hope honestly that they differ from yours because I think part of the fun is listening to something like this that you kind of argue with or yell at, maybe while you're driving, sitting at work, and be like, "That's bullshit. I don't think that's true at all." Uh, but in a fun way, in a way that I don't come across as a prick for having my opinions, and I will try not to do that. And I will freely admit, today's top 10 list of uh, unpopular cinematic opinions is really based around pop culture cinema. There's not, there, there is one specifically that revolves around uh, true filmmaking and what have you. But uh, I guess spoiler alert for pop culture films, I'm kind of going to be all over the place. I guess uh, if I start talking about something and you feel it's a spoiler for you, fast forward. But but don't stop listening. You can't stop the top. Don't ever stop listening to Top Band. So here we go. Let's get into it. Number 10. Cloverfield is a really good fucking movie. Now, I will freely admit the found footage genre has kind of run its course. But if you travel all the way back to the land of 2008, Cloverfield was a found footage film. And to be honest with you, I think not only is it the top of the genre, but a really fantastic sci-fi concept that unfortunately has gotten sort of lost in the mix over time. I think that third movie that took place right after the Super Bowl on Netflix uh, that starred Baron Zemo, sort of took a lot of people out of the Cloverfield sphere. But that uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane is, of course, really good, too, but it's a completely different genre. Cloverfield. I mean, I remember going to see this bad boy in the cinema, and I've been burned by monster or kaiju movies before. To tell you the truth, I don't even... I mean... The God, the the modern Godzilla in uh, film trilogy is kind of eh, <laughs> eh, like I and of course we don't even talk about the Matthew Broderick Matthew Broderick Godzilla. So American kaiju films are solely 
and surely lacking. I didn't even like Pacific Rim that much, for God's sakes. Uh, I don't know. Guillermo del Toro might be a little overrated. Woo! Take that back, you son of a bitch. But uh, in Cloverfield specifically, the found footage element really makes me feel like I'm in New York City with the characters. And sure, it might be a little contrived at points. T.J. Miller's sort of annoying nowadays. Uh, his character's name is HUD, and he acts as the HUD, <laughs> being the person that holds the camera. But uh, in particular, the scene that stands out to me the most in my mind that really makes me feel like I'm living in New York City or inhabiting this world when a giant fucking kaiju monster attacks is the scene where they're in the convenience store and they run out and the United States military is confronting, uh, I guess we'll just call him Cloverfield, <laughs> the big fucker. And, uh, you know, they're shooting missiles, they're shooting machine guns, and I, you really just feel like you're there. The cinema that I was in had a really sweet, badass sound system, as they're supposed to, and it really resonated with me after leaving the cinema. Because of that, I've watched it quite a bit at home, and I still think it holds up, and it is underrated and underappreciated, not only uh, in the sci-fi genre, but since uh, found footage is is really shit upon, it's definitely the top of that, beating the Blair Witch uh, easily. And the Cloverfield trilogy or the Cloverfield concept is lost and we need to bring it back and we need to bring it back in a stronger way that matches the first entry. Number nine. So this uh, unpopular cinematic opinion is less pop culture oriented and more filmmaking based. But in my opinion, Traffic should have easily won the Oscar for Best Picture over Gladiator and it's not even a fucking question. Now, one reason I think this sort of fits into the pop culture sphere, uh, I guess destroying my earlier uh, thought process, Gladiator is one of those movies that people seem to really love and certainly appealed to a large audience and was a huge blockbuster success. I saw it when it came out. It was a summer movie. Uh, it was a summer blockbuster and that's totally fine you, you know the fact that you release a movie in a time period to garner box office success does not mean you cannot be an artistic film please don't think that's what i'm saying but gladiator is pretty much a formulaic action movie to me sure it's got a great score uh it's got some good performances i mean joaquin phoenix is fantastic russell crowe's really good too but traffic is such an achievement when it comes to filmmaking over Gladiator, in my opinion. Gladiator has epic scope, uh, wonderful uh, wonderful special effects, um, great battle sequences. It's intense, and you can certainly feel that. But traffic, to me, is intense in a different way. It's sort of like, akin to me anyway, watching Breaking Bad. When I used to watch Breaking Bad, I used to have panic attacks thinking, Jesus, well, why do you keep doing this? Traffic resonates for me and creates a similar experience. I feel the tension and I feel fear with the characters. I feel regret with the characters. I feel happiness with uh, the characters as well. Uh, you know, Don Cheadle, uh, you know, him and uh, his partner, uh, I think Luis Guzman is his name. Uh, tremendous back and forth. I feel sort of part of that camaraderie. Miguel Ferrer as well, uh, w when he's involved in their little triangle story. Catherine Zeta-Jones, I completely feel and empathize with her descent into her new character traits. Uh, going on the journey with Benicio Del Toro blows Russell Crowe's journey out of the water.
to me. And then you top you you put on top of that Steven Soderbergh's editing and yes, the filters on different areas of the world in or different stories might seem a little shallow and pedantic at this point in time in our history, but you got to remember this is the year 2000. This felt a lot more revolutionary at the time and sort of drew in the viewer in a different way. Uh, Gladiator to me is a lot simpler to understand the the great elements. Traffic, I feel like, is a little bit better. It's a little bit more complex, has more layers, and it it's it has to work harder to draw you in, not because of its subject matter or its quality, but because you know, end of the day, it's kind of a a PSA. It's an anti-drug movie. It's an anti-corruption movie. But we have to understand why we engage in the corruption before we understand why it's a bad thing. Whereas with Gladiator, it's simple cut and dry revenge in my opinion. Not to mention the fact that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was also nominated for Best Picture the same fucking year. And if you don't believe that traffic should have beat Gladiator... We can at least all agree that Crouching Tiger should have beat Gladiator, right? Right? Oh, well, I've always been a traffic fanboy, and I think that's probably pretty clear. Unpopular cinematic opinion number eight. Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom is the most superior Indiana Jones film, and I won't hear anything else about it. Sure, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is fun. It's funny. Sean Connery and Harrison Ford are a lot of fun. And it's great to get the gang back together for the third act. <laughs> Plus, Marcus Brody get lost in his own museum. It, it, you know, Last Crusade's my second favorite. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark is third. And of course, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull rounding, rounding out the top four at four. But Temple of Doom, number one above all else, folks... Indiana Jones with a sword. Do you really need more? Fine, I'll give it to you. Indiana Jones with lovable short round as his sidekick. Kihai Kwan, I love you, man. I love... Uh, come back and do something. I, I, you're, I know you're in uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. I'll get there. I promise I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm glad you're back. I actually also like Kate Capshaw as Willie. Um, I love... Indiana Jones as an early uh, or late 30s asshole to uh, women. Now, hey, that sounds awful. But I, I kind of, you know, uh, first of all, I, please understand the context here. I, I'm not saying that Indiana Jones should, like, beat Willie. Please, that's not what I'm saying. But I love their rapport of gruff, oh, I'm Indiana Jones versus, oh, I'm Willie the showgirl. I don't know. It's just she's obviously a sheltered character. Indiana Jones obviously ain't got time for bullshit. I just think it's a fun dynamic. I love Marion too. Don't get me wrong. I just kind of like Indiana Jones uh, having no time for Willie. It's very funny to me. Plus, um, the heart rip? I mean, come the fuck on. Infinitely more interesting than the Ark destroying the Nazis. Although, anytime Nazis are destroyed on fi- on, on film or in real life, it's A-OK with me. But I also love the fucking bridge fight at the end. 
the mine cart chase, even the beginning in the restaurant with the gong is a hell of a lot of fun. The musical number is a lot of fun. And music, folks, this is probably number one for Temple of Doom on my list. The John Williams score, wow, absolutely the best Indiana Jones score of all of them. And I would argue John Williams, maybe second best after anything Star Wars. I mean, doesn't that want to make you go rescue a bunch of kids held against their will? And, and you get the purity of of Indiana Jones rescuing those kids. He's fucking furious against the thuggy cult when he sees that they have the kids. It's great Indiana Jones shit. Like, you know, he might be... Uh, his fundamentals about putting shit in museums might be a little off-putting. Uh, you know, uh, he's not uh, appropriating other cultures, whatever. I mean, I don't mean whatever in real life. You know, not everything of the Indiana Jones grave robber, grave robber archaeology shit really uh, stands out. But it's not supposed to be a film that dives deep into the sociological implications of being an archaeologist. It's they're just fucking serial adventures, okay? But I do love how the fury in Harrison Ford's performance when he sees these kids in peril. I, I don't know. Temple of Doom was always sort of taboo in my house growing up. Not, I mean, shit, nothing was taboo. The first R-rated movie I ever saw was RoboCop, and I was like five years old, so that nothing was really taboo. But my parents were kind of like, oh, I don't know, Johnny C. You're watching Temple of Doom? That's the one with the heart rip. You sure you want to watch that? Yes, Mom. I'm sure that I absolutely do. And I think that's going to wrap the Temple of Doom discussion. But in my opinion, it's the best of the best of the best. Number seven. Gremlins 2 is far superior to original Gremlins. I will preface this that it has nothing to do with the Hulk Hogan appearance, although that is fantastic. You want to talk about metafiction. Meta is such a huge word right now. You know, when I was a kid, Gremlins 2 really confused me. I didn't really get it, if you will. But Gremlins 2 is a movie where not only does Gremlins, the first movie, exist because it happened to the characters in Gremlins 2, but the movie Gremlins also exists. Like, if Billy from Gremlins 2 took Phoebe Cates to Blockbuster, they could rent Gremlins. Okay? It's genius. It's a fantastic way to do a sequel to a movie that you didn't want to do. Not to mention the absolutely fantastic performance of John Glover, the Floronic Man himself, as everyone's favorite, lovable New York City real estate mogul, Daniel Clamp. Clearly named so because it sounds like Trump, but also because he clamps down on society and will rule over it with a lovable buffoon uh, thumb, if you will. He has he has a video prepared for his cable network for the end of the world. Here at the Clamp Cable Network, we're sorry, it's the end of the world. We've enjoyed bringing you quality programming. I mean, come the fuck on. Christopher Lee as the mad scientist 
And the most important part, the most important part, the, the variants of all the gremlins. The brain gremlin might be a top 10 all-time cinematic character. Okay, he's not from a point of view of character growth, character development, uh, resonant storytelling, but he's just hilarious, right? We want to talk about what's going on in this room right now. We want what all of you want. Civilization. <laughs> the the fantastic New York, New York number. It's got to be Vince Russo's favorite movie, right? I mean, the gremlin singing New York, New York is probably what he played at his kid's bar mitzvah, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's got to be up there. And the self-referential uh, of early 90s culture as well. Uh, it's way ahead of the time, too. It's got gags about, like, the cooking network, the archery network. You know, does every stupid little niche thing need to have a television channel? Yes. Yes, it did, apparently, because it fucking happened. Um, you know, I don't know if this is a controversial opinion. Most people don't give a shit about Gremlins, and I'm fully aware of that. But I wanted an excuse to talk about Gremlins, too, and I put it on the list for that specific reason. And it is the truth, though. I do truly believe this, in my opinion. Number six, Jar Jar Binks is no big deal. Slash, Star Wars fans need to relax. I say this as a massive Star Wars fan. I did an entire podcast series here on the Aqua Cave about the Obi-Wan Kenobi television show. Six episodes, one or five episodes, because the, uh, the first release was episodes one and two. And I'm not trying to shamelessly promote my own shit, but you should go back and listen to it. However, I want to I make it clear that I'm a massive Star Wars fan. All right? I don't have a problem with Jar Jar Binks. I, I get that the real estate of episode one could have been used to develop... Uh, other characters or just create different characters to occupy that role that wouldn't say things like, excuse me, or, oh, Pete, you're so... Like, it is what it is. However, when I had a child for the first time, uh, she hates Star Wars now, couldn't, couldn't tell you a thing about it, but when she was a kid, I'd throw on episode one specifically to test this theory. Yes, I guess you could say I used my infant child as a science experiment, but follow me here. I put on episode one, and she loved Jar Jar. She laughed at all the shit that he did. Uh, and when Jar Jar wasn't on screen, she's like, where the fuck's Jar Jar? She said that to me as a, as a four-year-old. She's like, Daddy, where the fuck's Jar Jar? And I was like, hey, honey, I'll put him back on. Okay, she didn't say that particularly. But Jar Jar Binks is a couple of things. He's an entry point for younger viewers. If you think about the Star Wars series rationally, episode one is supposed to be where you start. And you can start when you're young. And something silly like Jar Jar Binks or having one of the main protagonists be a nine-year-old is a great way to draw in children. And then as the series progresses, the child ages, etc., etc., I think that makes sense and you see where I'm going with this. The next thing is I really enjoy the idea of a bystander becoming involved in galactic politics or someone coming to the realization that you need to get active or uh, the fucking your life in the galaxy is going to pass you by. Jar Jar Binks uh, is not even revered in his own culture. He's not the mayor of Gonga City. He's not an engineer. He's not even a fucking taxi driver. He's been exiled. So he's like the lowest level of Gungan society. But 
he becomes an integral player in the scale and scope of the galactic narrative. And I find that interesting. Now, it's unfortunate that the pressures of society uh, minimalize the Jar Jar Binks role in Episode 2 and 3. Now, look, this is not a platform where I'm standing on saying, Jar Jar Binks is the best Star Wars character, or we need more Jar Jar. But it's unfortunate that due to the pressures of society and fans, in finger quotes, we didn't get to see Jar Jar Binks really evolve into much more. Although, using him as the political pawn uh, to get the Emergency Powers Act to put uh, Palpatine as the Supreme Chancellor without term limits or without power limitations is a stroke of genius. Uh, Because once you become involved, once you become an active participant, you have to stay in the game. You can't get, uh, you know, you're layered down by the minutia, and you have to pay attention. And Jar Jar Binks didn't pay attention and didn't see what was right in front of his face. He is the innocent. And the innocence is corrupted without its own knowledge. And that's where I stand on Jar Jar Binks. Controversial? Sure. Uh, Fun? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Number five. So, I'm a huge fan of the original of this film series. And I walked out of the third one. However, I'm here to provide the hypothesis that the middle chapter is actually pretty fucking good. And that would be Major League 2. Major League is an absolute classic, telling the story of Cleveland baseball team and their struggle for relevance in the late 80s. It made, well, it made Tom Berenger a Johnny C. household name. Uh, Obviously, he was already a household name. Uh, And Corbin Birdson as well. And the reason this gets on the list is that Major League Two is an example of, hey, let's make a sequel to a movie. Let's make a sequel to a movie that nobody wants to do. Let's make a sequel to the movie that we don't have all of our principles for. And hey, let's make a sequel to a movie and make it PG when the original was R. It has disaster written all over it. But I'm here to tell you, folks, Omar Epps is a pretty decent Willie Mays Hayes. And he is one half of Black Hammer, White Lightning, which, again, another movie that features a random fucking wrestler. Along with Gremlins 2 featuring Hogan, this bad boy has Jesse Ventura. And I can assure you it's just a coincidence, as talking about Black Hammer, White Lightning is not even a part of my notes. Um, It also has... WWF Hall of Famer Bob Euchre as well. But they add enough, they add decent enough new characters with uh, Kamikaze Tanaka, Rube Baker, uh, who else we got here? The Omar Epps, obviously, as Willie Mays Hayes. We've got uh, a sophisticated Wall Street-esque Charlie Sheen playing his version of Wild Thing, Rick Vaughn. We did lose Harris, though, the Southern Baptist uh, pitcher from the first one. Uh, If we could all bow our heads in prayer. Ah, Jesus Christ, Harris. Don't start a holy war. Uh, And, of course, Lou Brown, legendary manager of Cleveland baseball team, saying, Oh, yeah, I love this British stuff. It also has Jack Parkman. Uh, Call it the masturbator. Parkman doing his shimmy. It makes the women in Cleveland puke. (laughs) Uh, And, of course, uh, uh, known psychotic Randy Quaid, uh, not really acting, just playing a psychotic person who happens to be a fan of the Cleveland baseball team. And, you know, it. look, 
the first one's obviously much better. But I watched the second one about a year ago. I don't remember why. And I was like, you know what? This this stands up as its own thing that's a decent enough continuation of the first one, but also finds a way to still have relevant humor without the R rating. And, and to me, that is quite an achievement and something that's very difficult to do. So I wanted to give it a special shout-out. Number four. George Lazenby is the second best 007 behind Daniel Craig. And since we've come this far, let me just give you my full rankings in terms of the actors who have played 007 in live action. Craig is the best. George Lazenby is the second. That's right. He's better than all your heroes. Number three, Pierce Brosnan. Number four, Timothy Dalton. To tell you the truth... Dalton and Brosnan are interchangeable because I only like Brosnan in Goldeneye and I only like Dalton in The Living Daylights. So pick your poison, although I would say Goldeneye probably weighs a little bit heavier in my heart because, you know, I saw in the theaters when it first came out, it was 95, I was 12, Bond coming back was a huge thing. And, you know, I, I'm not, I didn't play a ton of GoldenEye 007. I played enough, okay? So that really doesn't have anything to do with this. But after Dalton or Brosnan is when we get to Connery. And then, of course, Roger Moore is last. Although, I mean, I understand the appeal of Roger Moore. But to me, it's kind of like saying my favorite Batman is Adam West. And, and I respect where you're coming from. But by telling the world your favorite Batman is Adam West or your favorite Bond is Roger Moore, you're telling me, you don't really like Batman, or you don't really like James Bond, and that's okay. You like that version of it, and by all means, you do you, I'll do me. And it's totally cool. But on Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, you know, I was going to say it's the best Bond film. That No Time to Die really gives it a run for its money. But No Time to Die also kind of falls apart with the villain plot. Uh, The villain's kind of uninteresting, which is crazy, considering it's played by a goddamn Academy Award winner. Uh... The dude from Mr. Robot, Rami Malek. Uh, I know his name. I was trying to think of his name in Mr. Robot. Elliot. Why do I know these things, fans? Uh, but Lazenby is, uh, you know, Australian bloke. Uh, no acting experience. Not too bad. The only thing I dislike about Lazenby's performance is that creepy scene where he's cracking the safe and he pops open the Playboy magazine and then casually strolls through the offices of, like, a lawyer. Uh, you know with the playboy in his back pocket like oh just hello just a little uh reading material for the trolley i I just don't get it i mean i realize it was like 69 uh, so you know we're really we're really in the thralls of the 60s but still i just do people casually read porn in london i mean that's fine I don't have a problem with that. I just, right into the Aqua Cave, if casual pornography, not that Playboy's pornography, it's not, it's not, but it's funnier if you call it casual pornography. Uh, If you call it casual uh, topless gals, it's not as funny. So, your, your mileage may vary, but Lazenby is the one that does it for me, and on Her Majesty's Secret Surface... Secret Service, excuse me, is number is number one or number two in my heart. Ironically enough, the top three all have a little bit in common. They all circle around the same part of the solar system, which is completely unplanned, but that's the way that it is. I guess it tells you a little bit about where Johnny C's mind lives. Number three. The Dark Knight Rises is Better than the Dark Knight. I know, I know. 
Um, look, let's let, let me try to quantify this, okay? I think they're both tremendous films. I also want to point out that I'm a huge fan of Heat, which is obviously the, one of the major influences on The Dark Knight. And I don't, I'm not trying to put anything that The Dark Knight accomplished down. I'm not trying to remove it from the the rightful spot that it's earned up on the pedestal of cinema. Okay, I'm not trying to do that. And I'm not trying to diminish the contributions of Heath Ledger. Um, I, I would actually, uh, po- you know, I considered for this list the potentiality of including this opinion that I'm not quite ready to commit to, but also kind of believe that Aaron Eckhart's performance as Harvey Dent slash Two-Face is more interesting and then therefore perhaps better than Ledger's performance as the Joker. Now, Ledger's Joker is iconic, and it's... I don't... I was going to say it's a little one-note. It's not, but it, in a way, in a way it kind of is, in a sense that the Joker's facade that he wears when he's around other characters is usually a facade or a veil of... Um, Oh, God, what's the word I'm looking for? Because I'm kind of off script here. It's an illusion, okay? He's performing exactly what the individuals in front of him need to see. So the Joker's always giving a performance. Aaron Eckhart has to act like a human. And then he has to act like a human that has to make difficult choices. It's easy to give a performance. I mean, it's not. I'm not. I'm not trying to. But what I'm. I'm not trying to say it's like easy to fucking give a performance. I can't just walk onto a film stage and perform like these people. That, that, that's not all I'm saying. But I think when you are inhabiting a character that has free reign to behave as ever is necessary, or can do whatever they need to, as long as they get the point across and and clearly state their lines. Okay, um, I think Aaron's job was maybe heavier to carry. I don't know. They're both so good. Uh, and this is off topic. The Dark Knight Rises is an epic that tells the tale of Gotham City. Because in reality, Gotham City's sort of the main character of Nolan's trilogy, right? Obviously, Bruce Wayne is the protagonist. Oh boy, Christopher Nolan and protagonist. There's a whole other fucking story. Does anyone understand Tenet? <laughs> Hit me up on Twitter at the Johnny C. I still don't. Anywho, I appreciate that Gotham City is the focal point. The Dark Knight Rises is an epic tale that you know it, it's fitting that it's you know it steals for or takes liberties from or is loosely a, a tale of two cities. It's a character study. It's sort of everybody's movie. It's an epic tale of the inhabitants of Gotham City. Selina Kyle, Bruce Wayne, Alfred Pennyworth, Robin John Blake, uh, James Gordon, Matthew Modine's cop. I forget his name off the top of my head. That guy who's like, oh, yeah, you, it's your first day on the job. Well, get ready for it. Here comes Batman. Well, he doesn't actually talk like that. The running back of the Gotham uh, Rogues football team. That guy had a bad day. Or, no, I guess it was everybody else, because the guy that receives the pass. Uh, anyway, again, I'm off topic and off script. This is why I try not to do it. But, I, I'm, you know, I'm on a topic that I'm very passionate about. Um, the Dark Knight Rises allows us to focus on what Gotham has become based on the actions of the first two films and where we're going to leave it based on the actions of the characters involved. I find Bane phenomenal. I find the plot to make Gotham 
its own sort of independent city-state that lives and dies by the will of the people? Fascinating. Much more fascinating um, than the Joker's sort of one-note belief that you know the town, the you know these people will tear themselves apart. I do think that's extremely relevant. But Bane's, it's like Joker's plot is 9 out of 10 to me when it comes to interesting and fascinating. Bane's is just a 10 out of 10. And I think that gives it the notch. I will freely admit, it's a little slow to get started. And there are maybe too many characters. You'll notice I didn't even mention Talia al Ghul or uh, Lucius Fox in my little rant that I gave earlier. There's, those are, uh, you know, Miranda Tate is Talia al Ghul, obviously. Um... And I love that they bring that in. Uh, so there's a lot to cover. And it's almost three hours long. Probably could have been a little bit longer. There's Daggett, that guy. Uh, ben Mendelsohn from Rogue One. So, yeah. But that allows us to play in the world of a large poetic narrative that encompasses a true world. And that world is Gotham City. A tale of Gotham City. So... Uh, because I went off script so much, I'm gonna have to rein this one in because I don't want to ramble on it. Because we're gonna, you know, the main event is the main event for a reason. So, uh, but that's my number three. We can talk about it some other time. Dark Knight Rises over the Dark Knight. Number two, also Batman related, on accident. A couple of years ago, I remember coming across some information in an article about the development of the Batman franchise, Tim Burton's involvement, and things like that. That indicated to me, and this was not like some dude's blog post, I, I, you know, I didn't look it up, it's always been in my memory, I'm sure you can find it, that at one point in time, uh, Batman 89, as we now know it, it was considered that perhaps the best choice for Bruce Wayne would have been not Michael Keaton. Now, the studio balked at Michael Keaton, but the studio balked at this one even harder, but I think it would have been fascinating. Now, before I say the name, Keep in mind that Batman 89 does not treat um, the actors like toys. What I mean by that, that's Batman and Rob. What I mean by that is, you know, nowadays it's like, oh, I'm an actor. Oh, my God, I got a role in a Marvel movie. Oh, my God, they just emailed me my diet, which I, I, I kind of get, you know, whatever. I'm not saying you have to whatever, but it's like uh, Chris Hemsworth, uh, you're Thor. You should probably look like Thor. Uh, Mr. Keaton, you're playing Batman. Great. Uh, where's the Hardys at? I love Hardys. You know, give me the Hardys. And I'm, and I'm not trying to shame Michael Keaton. The dude looks fine. Uh, hanging upside down. Looks better than I ever did in that shirtless scene. But it's not as if they cast someone because they were a fucking physical specimen. That's my main point. Because the actor that I'm going to talk about is not a physical specimen. They're taller than Mr. Keaton. Um, but I'm sure they could have and I'm not trying to shame this person. I'm just saying that it's when you hear it, you're like, what? That guy? But this guy completely reinvented himself and has had an amazing dramatic run and has shown range. Range that I think is interesting. And I also believe that this person might be a little unstable. Now, Michael Keaton does a great unstable too. So maybe I should just get into it. Bill Murray. I know. I know. And I hear you. But put your tweets down. Imagine Bill Murray given the opportunity to shed those comedy roots earlier and really dig into a role that he would have taken seriously. Because I understand he was interested. He was very interested. 
And of course, this is all second, third hand. It might be shenanigans. I don't know. So I, I feel kind of stupid talking about something uh, like it's a tale out of school. But I really think there's a connection there. I really think Bill could have gotten something out of this Bruce Wayne character who lives a lie or a facade or acts like something he isn't. And I'm not saying Bill Murray's not a happy-go-lucky guy. I'm sure he's a very happy dude. But I also think that much like a lot of comedic actors or individuals who sort of get pigeonholed into anything in their lives. You don't have to be an actor to feel like this. You really want to prove everybody wrong. You also really want to let people know how good you really are. And I think Bill Murray getting to sink his teeth into the role of a lifetime. And quote, you know, I'm doing the finger quotes thing here. I really think it could have been interesting. Probably would have had to do something about that hair, though. But hey! It's Hollywood. They can do anything, right? And, and, you know, is it worthy of number two on the list? I don't know. I definitely think it's a shit take or a what? You can't possibly believe that when you when you really think about your initial response. I mean, look at Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, which is arguably like two, two years later or three years later after they would have filmed Batman. And it's like, that guy? Batman? Well, I mean, if he knows he's getting Batman, I think uh, Bill might look a little different uh, on the set for Batman. But... Regardless, it's too late. It'll never happen. It's a fun what-if. But I firmly believe and will die on the hill that it would have been amazing. And I'm sticking to it. Now, I know it's the first episode of Top Man. But we have arrived at number one on the list. And I'd like to set this precedent now. You know, I've tried to go through the list as quickly as possible without shortcutting anything or without going off on tangents. The reason I've done that is because on every episode of Top Man, when we get to number one, it's not just going to be a quick, hey, how's it going? Here's what I think, and I'll see you next time. I mean, I'm not going to waste your time, but if you're number one at anything, you really deserve explanation. And so... I'm going to deliver number one to you, and then we are going to deep dive into the rationalization behind it is no, the reason it is number one. So, without further ado, Top Man, Episode 1's number one. Zack Snyder's trilogy of DC Comics films are the absolute best comic book films of all time. And please, before, just before... I want to make a couple things clear. While I certainly did uh, tweet out uh, hashtag, you know, uh, release the Snyder Cut, restore the Snyder Cut, whatever the fuck it was, okay? I want to make it very clear that I am not a Snyder cult type of person, okay? It just so, I, you know, tell you, I'm not even really like a huge Zack Snyder fan. I, I'm not a Watchmen's, eh, like, I like, I love Watchmen. The film's like, oh, you just kind of pulled the panels and put it on the page. I don't really like 300. Um, Sucker Punch, the director's cut's okay. Uh, it, there's a lot of things at play there. Look, he, the man's an amazing visual storyteller. Okay, I'm not going to deny that. But I also think sometimes that visual storytelling aspect leans into a bit of excess sometimes. So I'm not some sort of Snyder cultist. And I do not endorse like berating people or being an asshole to people that don't like Snyder stuff, because I get, if, if you don't like it, I completely understand that, and I hope that when I uh, emphasize the points as to why I believe this become clear, it's like, yeah, Johnny, you're right, 
this is clearly your thing. Like, this was clearly designed for you, given your mindset and your desire to see these characters on screen presented in this way. So, I'm not trying to shame you or your beliefs, and I'm not trying to force you to believe what I believe. But I do kind of want to share a little bit of insight into why it resonates with... If it resonates with you or with people for the reason it resonates with me, here's the reason why. Um, But yeah, I'm just not all about um, talking shit to people or not even being able to laugh at it. Uh, You know, when the Snyder Cut was released, one of my favorite podcast shows out there, uh, the We Hate Movies podcast, which does not need an endorsement from me, uh, uh, but I am endorsing them. Uh, They're not hurting. For listeners, okay, but I just want to say that they released a, like a multi-part episode uh, on the Zack Snyder Justice League that I found hilarious and agreed with a lot of their sentiments. It, it just so happens that it just does it for me, man. It just does it for me, and that's cool. But I just I don't want to be one of those people, and and that's why it was so important to me to preface this. So that being said. Let's dive into the Zack Snyder DC Trilogy and the reasons why it's amazing. Now, I want to let you all in really quick on some information. I am not trying to come across like a dude who invited you into his dorm room and is going to, you know, reveal the secrets of the world through a haze of bong smoke, because that's not what I'm going for. This is just my, my interpretation and what I've gotten out of it over the years, Okay. And it needs just a small bit of setup, and I'm sorry. So why are they the best? Well, they're the best to me. So to understand that thesis, you have to understand who is saying it. And I just have two quick things that I think will... There you go. I am not a religious person. And perhaps that gives me an advantage to view these characters and concepts I'm going to be presenting to you as a bit more abstract. Okay? I'm not saying that it's right or it's good for you. It just is me. I also believe that art exists as a way to try and define the undefinable concept of existence. Boom. Here we go. People ask, so are you DC or are you Marvel? Are you WWF or are you WCW? Are you maybe ECW? You know, that whole argument. Well, I always give the exact same answer verbatim to the fact that if someone asks me that question and I'm with a person who has heard me answer the question, they just put a gun in their mouth because they don't want to hear it again. So here we go. I much prefer DC over Marvel, and here is why. Um, to me, the Marvel Universe, which is nothing wrong with it, but it's inhabited by everyday individuals who find themselves drawn into extraordinary circumstances. Now, with the right writer, that's actually hard to say. It can be a little bit more involved than that. But at its base level, that's sort of what it is. Tony Stark, Peter Parker, the Fantastic Four, uh, who else? Fucking, you know, whatever. All these heroes are just regular people that get blasted with cosmic rays, bit by a spider, shrapnel in the heart, uh, super soldier serum, you know, stuff like that. And that's totally cool, very comic booky. But to me, the DC heroes are gods amongst men. The DC heroes exist on a different plane of existence. Not, like, physically or literally, but to me, they sort of hover above humanity, knowing damn well that they could destroy humanity and existence, or they can help it progress and move forward. It's basically up to them. Captain America 
isn't exactly able to punch the planet in half. Iron Man can launch a lot of missiles, sure, but he can't punch the planet in half. And it's a silly example. Superman, punch the planet in half. Uh, Wonder Woman, punch the planet in half. Flash, turn back time and it stop mankind from evolving if he really wants to. Uh, you know, etc., etc. Uh, so... I, I just sort of appreciate that archetype more. I love the idea that you're not watching these heroes at work saving cats out of trees, stopping robberies and stuff like that. The gods have come down from Mount Olympus and decided to intervene uh, on behalf of humanity. And uh, if we fuck them over, well, they just might make a different decision. So let's start with Man of Steel. Well... First things first, the first thing you hear, the goddamn Hans Zimmer score. It's so fucking good. I appreciate John Williams' original Superman march, and I get it. It's definitely a different feel and gives a different vibe, and that's totally cool. But the Hans Zimmer Man of Steel is just such a fantastic modern film score. I love the fact that when we start on Krypton, it looks like it came right out of a goddamn Final Fantasy game. Seriously, all Jor-El is missing is, you know, casting a couple of magic spells, and we are there. I love Henry Cavill. I think he's a fantastic Superman. He's a good Clark Kent. I mean, just looking like Superman is not good enough. See, Ralph, comma, Brandon. Amy Adams. Kinda my dream. <laughs> uh, that sounds really creepy when I say it like that. Okay, but Amy Amy Adams, fantastic actress, most importantly. Number two, her Lois Lane is written as a journalist. She solves the mystery of who the Superman is in about a week, okay? And she's beautiful. I love the fear that Pa Kent has in his everyday existence as soon as they rescue little Kal-El out of that rocket. The concepts that he tries to present to the audience and to Clark himself, that Kal-El's mere existence will alter humanity forever. And it will be up to Cal or Clark to decide if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, this is absolutely true, right? If you give in to the fact that Superman would be a real thing, this viewpoint is so much more realistic than the old Christopher Reeve truth, justice, and the American way. I mean, that stuff's fine. I have no problem with that, okay? However, when you say we're making Superman and we're going to make it relevant for modern audiences, I mean, this is it. I mean, can you imagine? You wake up some arbitrary Tuesday and you're angry because your boss is being a dick, you know? And this weekend, you got to go to your kid's soccer game. You know, and uh, you're worried. Maybe somebody's got COVID or somebody in your office is out sick suddenly. Maybe they have COVID, you know, which are all very real and, and rational concerns, okay? But you wake up on some idle Tuesday and the fucking Superman exists. What, what, what do you do? What, there's nothing about the Superman in the Bible. There's nothing about Superman in any other holy text. I, there's nothing about the Superman... In, in, the, in this book of laws here that governs my local community, what, what are we going to do? Oh my God, kids, stay, you're not going to school. Like, the world is closed, okay? Planet Earth is closed today. That's one of my favorite memes to come out of the pandemic. And then it turned out to be a real thing and it sucked. So I'm not trying to embrace that. Um, but that to me, that humanity would absolutely 
fall apart at the seams if the Superman existed. We couldn't handle it. And Pa Kent is trying to instill that into a young Clark. He's not trying to... I mean, I love Glenn Ford's performance in Superman the Motion Picture. You know, Clark, you were put here for a reason. I don't know what the reason is. A good reason. Someone's reason. But, you know, and oh, now I'm hearing the John Williams score and I'm getting emotional. Uh, yeah, it's great. And, of course, in order to feel better about ourselves, we have to put Superman in handcuffs. Because that's what we do to people, right? When we want to subjugate them or make them feel less than or let them know that we're the ones who are in control, we just fucking throw you in handcuffs. We don't ask, well, what's your situation, dude? Where are you coming from? Why are you out here on the street? Oh, you're a veteran with no way to go? Well, let's put you in some handcuffs first and then everything will be fine. I- I'm sorry. That was a bit of a, a First Blood Rambo-esque rant, but that's our instinct, right? Hey, you aren't quite like me. Here's some handcuffs and then we can talk. And then, just from a pure action film point of view and perspective, the, uh, well, let, actually, let's cover that later. I want to talk about the aliens, but I actually want to talk about when they invade first. Uh, it's just a great scene. They take over our technology. They announce to the world, uh, yeah, that's even worse. It's not even the, the planet Earth doesn't learn about the Superman through him rescuing a cat out of a tree or rescuing Lois Lane from falling off of a building. We learn about the existence of the Superman because our technology is taken over and we lose all sense of the ability to exist in our lives. We're, we're stopped dead in our tracks. My phone is doing something. My TV is doing something. My radio is doing something. You are not alone. You are not alone. Translate. It's just. It's a great scene. It's hor- it's it's horrifying to be honest with you the concept. Um let's talk about how the the cuz these aliens are here. Now let's talk about how they move and how they interact and they fight with one another. I love the visual flair around the Kryptonians gaining their powers on Earth and also how they fight. They sort of move fluidly from place to place. Uh it's not as if they run really fast. They just, they're here, and then they're there. It's kind of like a video game, but I mean that in a good way. The Battle of Metropolis? Come the fuck on. It's glorious. I know some people say it's unnecessary disaster porn and what have you. No. If it doesn't exist, and if it doesn't have stakes, there's no point. I love the Avengers just as much as the next guy, but... You don't really watch the Avengers and think, oh no, that Chitauri Leviathan just crushed a building full of people, or that building just fell down and 67 children just got crushed. I'm not saying Man of Steel indulges in calamity, but it doesn't shy away from the fact that, look, this part of the city doesn't exist anymore. And that's a horrifying thing. I'm not like, yay. It's just, it at least... It, it, it continues to exist within the structure and the tonal existence that's set with its premise. That's all I'm saying about the destruction of Metropolis, or just the center of Metropolis, if you will. And then, of course, the big thing, the one thing that every fanboy complains against, and the one thing that everyone's like, yeah, Man of Steel's pretty good, but why, why does he kill Zod? I mean, why does anyone make any decision? I mean, Kal-El is not some sort of trained soldier, okay? And he's not some sort of altruist that lives by this bullshit golden standard that no fucking human being could possibly live up to, okay? Now, granted, I'm not fighting alien invaders, so it's a little bit easier for you or me or them or she to not kill someone, okay? I'm not (laughs) 
understand the context here. But they're, if Zod is, Zod is going to be just as powerful as Kal-El, period. It'll happen. And Zod's a soldier. He's engineered genetically, specifically, for one purpose. To protect Krypton. To ensure the Krypton way of life flourishes and continues to exist. He will not stop. I mean, he tells Kal-El this, but in case you thought he was just being hypothetical or philosophizing, which isn't a word, he's not. He is genetically driven to do the things that he does. And there's an innocent family about to die. Well, Clark's had a f- Clark's never been a uh, genocidal uh, general uh, of planetary proportions, but he's he's been a human. He's been a person with a mother and a father and a dog. Okay, and uh, he makes a choice, and he instantly shows that that choice has affected him by screaming and yelling at the top of his lungs. Not only has he killed a person, he's destroyed the lineage of his own planet. This is it. I mean, it has ramifications. It's not done willy-nilly. It's not just done because it's cool. He's not Arnold, you know, uh, killing somebody with a pipe and being like, let out some steam, Bennett. He's not. It's not a gag. It's a choice that has ramifications. And those ramifications don't stop here. They move forward into the next part of this trilogy. So just a couple of quick caveats about this next one, okay? Number one, I refuse to call it by its full name. It's it's just a little ridiculous. That's if I have one bad thing to say at all. Okay, it's it's the naming of the sequel. But whatever. Ah, oh, fuck it. I'll just say it. It is Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. I just always call it Dawn of Justice. People are like, what'd you do last night? I watched Dawn of Justice. I, I just call it Dawn of Justice. The, to me, that's a better title anyway. Uh, the next caveat. Clearly, I'm talking about the Ultimate Edition. It's the only edition of the movie that should exist. It's the director's cut. It's That's it. That's it's the only version of the movie that exists. All right. Might be my favorite film score of all time. And I don't say that lightly because I love film scores. It's actually... Uh, film music makes or breaks the experience for me a lot of times. Um... I swear to God, these Marvel movies just have nothing going for it in the music department. And I'm not trying to throw shade at the composers. I I don't know that they're offered a lot to do. I I just don't know. The film, to me, is almost like an opera in a lot of cases. And I don't like opera, but I like that comparison. Uh, Starting off right from the get-go, let's talk about Batman. Obviously, the first film is all about Superman. Dawn of Justice acts as a sequel to Man of Steel, but also a widening of the universe it introduces batman lex luther it briefly introduces other justice league heroes and it also fully introduces well a 50 percent introduces wonder woman okay we're going to start with batman though starting at the beginning i've heard a lot of talk about the overindulgence of the shot specifically that involves the death of martha wayne and while it is kind of a bummer that it's like sort of a Frank Miller thing, although I would argue Dark Knight Returns Frank Miller is still easy to swallow. Um, I, I get where people are coming from, but the pearls, the gun, the, the, the shot specifically where the gun triggers and recoils and breaks the pearls, the gun is in the face of Martha Wayne. 
because Martha is so... We'll, we'll get there. Don't you... You better fucking believe we'll get there. Uh, because Martha is so integral to the plot, I think it's important to shy away from realism because it the Batman Begins is how it would happen, right? Two shots and run away and, and that's that. Nothing dramatic, not this... I, I mean, it's, it's frightening either way, but... Uh, showing the the gravity of what happened to Martha and what Bruce would have seen. I mean, that bullet doesn't have to travel very far. It's not losing a lot of speed, and, and it's going right into his mother. It's horrifying. Ben Affleck, a this, Ben Affleck's Batman is a gift. I don't know any other way to to, to you know to to put it. Let's start with uh, the beginning, when he's in Metropolis, reliving the events of Man of Steel. Number one, great call. Let me know that as I'm enjoying Man of Steel's climax, that, that Bruce Wayne is running around Metropolis trying to get to Wayne Tower. It's brilliant. And he can't be the Batman. He's in transit. He lands in Metropolis. He's like, well, fuck this. I, I you know, No Batman time. I'm just going to Bruce Wayne this thing. We're past the silly nonsense. Bruce Wayne's going to drive around town like a, like a fucking madman. Okay, and if he gets caught, not that anyone's gonna arrest him. It's just, oh yeah, I just, wh- which way's east? I don't know. I got a little lost. So he's in the downtown area. He gets to Wayne Tower, and the and Wayne Tower collapses, and it's horrifying. And there's the amazing shot of Affleck running into the debris and the dust as it covers the frame. The scene after the building falls and the dust fades away. Uh, the first thing that happens to us is we're hit with a sharp pinging sound, which is not only the pinging sound of a mother box. This isn't actually that. I'm not being that silly. But it's like when your hearing goes out or you you know, you know experience some sort of trauma to your ears or a loud noise. It's just it's a haze. It puts you right in that mood. And then as the dust settles away, the first thing that we see is a horse wandering around without a rider. Now this is kind of weird, but it's not. It's it's otherworldly and foreshadowing. This is what the world will eventually become. Society will fall and will it'll take us back to a time. You know, we're not manufacturing cars. We're not, you know, it, it's like, well, we got some horses. Uh, the old nightmare. We'll get there, I promise. But it's a taste of things to come. This is what Superman, the Superman, is capable of right here and right now in front of you. But also from a larger perspective, this is what the Superman is capable of doing to our world and our society. And then he rescues Wally. That's fine. And then there's the little girl who's staring at the remnants of Wayne Tower crying. The sign's about to fall on her. He runs, he rescues, etc. Where's your mom? We're going to find your mom. She points to Wayne Tower. And the look. The look. And then Superman and Zod fall down from sky. And the bum, 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 bum. And, and they just, Affleck's eyes. I am happy that Mr. Affleck is doing better now. I want to make that clear. But the pain in his real life, he has to be pulling that in, right? I mean, this this look is too fucking good. To not be real pain and real anger. Not my Batman, you say? There's a hell of a transition. Well, guess what, guys? He's no one's Batman. This is the first version of Batman on screen that has existed under these circumstances. It is a different interpretation. He's got a dead Robin. I like that. The comic nerd in me likes that a lot. 
Um, but moving forward, it's, you know, the, the steps that he has to take. Why does he take these drastic steps? My God, he has a gun on the Batmobile. Holy shit. He, he just straight up killed that guy running him over with his car. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I got to get some kryptonite to kill a fucking alien god. This is not the time. And, uh, I think I forgot to mention, he's lost it. 20 years in Gotham, Alfred. We've seen what people, what good promises are. How many people still, or how, how many good people died? How many people stayed that way? This is it, man. Uh, 20 years in Gotham, he's fucking had it. He is not in a normal set of frame of mind. I realize that's kind of silly, considering we're talking about Bruce Wayne and he's insane from the get-go. But this is a whole new level for a whole new purpose. Okay? It's it's terrifying, to be honest with you. Because a man as capable as the Batman being in this frame of mind, it's something that you should fear. It's something you should not be willing to embrace. And that's kind of the whole point of the fucking movie. We'll get there. Um, the nightmare scene we've talked about. Batman's vision. Uh, is it a dream? Is it the future? Well, it's temporal interference because uh, it revolves around a fantastic callback to Crisis on Infinite Earths where the Flash travels so far back in time and finds Bruce in Gotham City and warns him that, you know, the multiverse is collapsing. But here he's warning him about Superman and Lois Lane. And it's brilliant. So is the nightmare. Also, final thing I'll say about Batman because we got to move on. The most brilliant thing in the entire movie. The greatest aspect of the performance. Probably the best line in the entire trilogy. Batman is at Lex Luthor's party trying to fuck with his server. And Mercy Graves catches him wandering around the server room. And, well, he's got to act drunk. And he's like, I think that la- this isn't the line. I think that last martini was too, too many. He's looking for the bathroom, and she tells him where the bathroom is. And he's like, okay. And she's, she leaves the server room, and he looks down and goes, I like those shoes. It's the best. It's the best. All right. Now, it is a sequel to Man of Steel. What is Superman dealing with here? Well, Superman is dealing with the realization that his adopted father was absolutely right. I'm here now, and everything changes. The opening scene in Africa, where Lois Lane goes to interview the warlord, uh, gets caught fucking around with a CIA informant named Jimmy Olsen. I love that little Easter egg, and he's shot in the skull. But my point is, is that it is a deep political scenario. Every act is a political act, Holly Hunter says. And what is the government's big solution to this? Superman is acting, running around, flying, you know, doing, uh, making unilateral decisions. What are we going to do about it? I know. Let's have a meeting in Washington. A meeting to ask God to sit still until we get everything approved and then you can go do your thing. Sounds reasonable. I mean, for humanity, it's reasonable because that's what we would do. Must there be a Superman? The montage. Right after, (laughs) Affleck says, I like those shoes. Clark sees a catastrophe happening. I believe it's in Mexico. If it's not, whatever. And he flies. Yeah, it's a day of the dead celebration. He rescues a girl from a fire. and He lands. And like a god, the people surround him and worship him and touch him and bow to him. Not because he's a general or because he's a dictator or a warlord. He is 
He's it to them. Whatever they need. That's what he's giving them right now. Superman does Herculean tasks solving world problems. All the while, uh, we debate endlessly. Well, should Superman be allowed to do this? Oh, I don't know. Why Superman do this? Why Superman rescuing these, that fucking poor woman on the roof with the fl- in the flood with the Superman uh, sigil painted, or a House of El sigil painted onto her roof, begging, please, please, you're all I have. This is it. I have no hope. This is it. And he hovers above her like a god. Obviously, he's there to help. But, but the way it's filmed, the way it's shot, I mean, this is... In some other movie or some other tone, this this is it. This is the shot where he flies away. No, uh, you know, you look up and shout, save us, and I'll whisper no. I mean, this is that. I mean, that's not what this scene's trying to get across, but it's a possibility. And that's why this montage is great. He's lost as a person as well. The world doesn't want me to intervene. Did I make a mistake and lead to countless deaths at that compound in the first first scene? His mindset is all over the place in terms of, you know, what's my identity? And then, across the bay, who allows this man, who's just a man, mind you, to intervene and make decisions on criminality? Who allows this man to be judge, jury, and executioner? I'm trying to save people, and the world hates and fears me. This fucker does whatever he wants, and the cops work with him. I mean, is it because I can fly? Well, is it my fault that I can fly? I didn't make a choice to fly. So Clark is not in a good spot. And he, he's almost sort of trying to prove to himself that he can make a good decision that will actually be good for society, that will be good for people who are hunted by the Batman, who are targeted by the Batman. The bat is dead. Bury it. Consider this mercy. Yeah, he tries to act real tough. And I I agree that he's pissed. I don't think the Superman is going to snap the Batman in half, though. He is definitely, you know, uh, talking to a guy doesn't work like that. You know what works? A fist. I'm stealing all these lines from the movie. But that's, that's his mindset. And, of course, they're being manipulated to see what certain people want them to see. But we'll get there. And, hey, I'm a fan of Gal Gadot. The performance... The Wonder Woman theme, especially when she jumps down and rescues the boys at the end, it's amazing. And I'm so glad they went with the warrior goddess interpretation of Wonder Woman and not something cheesy or not as serious. It's perfect. I mean, it is what it is. Wonder Woman 84 is not the best. We're talking about the Snyder trilogy. That's it. Okay, we're talking about the Snyder trilogy. Now, I promise we'd get there. And we're there. It's, just, it's not really Wonder Woman's movie. Uh, she's perfectly fine. She doesn't... I mean, it's great to see Wonder Woman on the big screen. It's great to see her fucking holding her own with Doomsday. It's great to see her, like, leading the charge. Like, you watch... I've watched this in battle a thousand times. She's the one who's making strategic decisions. Batman would if he could, but what are you going to do against Doomsday? Superman's kind of a blunt instrument, and he fights that way. Fly in, heat vision, punch, punch. Fly in, heat vision, punch. I mean, what, what do you got? That's what I know to do. Wonder Woman knows what the fuck to do. Anywho, I promised, let's deliver. Let's talk about Lex, baby. Yeah, you guys remember that song? So, let's talk about Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor. You think I'm about to go off the rails? No. No, I'm about to drop knowledge. What is Lex Luthor in general? Lex Luthor is a genius. 
smartest man on the planet, richest man on the planet, most influential man on the planet. I, I mean, sure, different iterations. The good ones, the G- let's not forget that Gene Hackman shit. This is like true Lex Luthor. All right, uh, powerful? Nope. He's all the other things though, and that is the genius of Jesse Eisenberg's performance. You know, it's really sad to me. Like I, I read an interview just yesterday. Uh, where Jesse Eisenberg said he'd be surprised to be asked back to be Lex Luthor. He'd be delighted, but he also thinks that people just hate the performance, hate him, you know, you ruined it, blah, blah, blah. And and I'm sure he's doing fine. But at the same time, it's unfortunate that people maybe aren't crazy like me and look at it this way, but I hope I can can encourage you to to see it a different way. Because this is the one performance where I, I really get it. If you want to be like, Gal Gadot's not good, it's like, oh, I don't know, I would argue she's good in what she's asked to do. If you want to say Cavill's not good, I'd be like, I disagree. If you want to say Affleck's not good, I, I, I'd fuck your skull, okay? <laughs> now get it! This is a bad joke. But I totally get why Lex throws people, alright? This version of Lex Luthor is keenly aware of how futile his existence truly is. And it infuriates him. Everything that he has and is is completely worthless compared to the Superman. He was perhaps the most powerful person in all of mankind. You know, when we were all playing by the same rules. How dare the gods decide to intervene during his reign on top. Now... In terms of less character development, but the specific performance, why does he kind of do the stutter thing? And he's not stuttering like gold dust or some shit. He's like, uh, we talk about the library, and that is a paradoxical. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of a little. He's he's kind of uh, Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum Jr. Okay, and in my opinion, this is this is what influences that performance. He's such a fucking genius. All right. Not only is he simultaneously thinking of all the possible things that need to be done, everything he's trying to keep straight, okay? But his brain, like you ask questions like, what do you want for lunch? I mean, 17 different things are happening all at the same time in there, all about different lunches. What should be best for this? What should be best for that? Like, he's just a fucking, he's burdened by his vast intelligence. That library scene specifically, where he's like, the power is, that is paradoxical. You know, he's trying to tell the truth. Like, he wants to go into a rant about how fucking pointless his existence is compared to Superman, but he stops because he can't let everybody in on his diabolical plan, and then he's truly enraged and hates Superman. You know, he's got to let the whole thing play out. It's just, he he sees how pointless he is, and, and he just can't get over it, okay? He's also got some great lines. What's the quickest way to get to Superman? Now, the straightest path to Superman is a pretty little road called Lois Lane. And obviously, before the movie even starts, he knows who Clark and Bruce are. He figured it out. Uh, he calls uh, Superman Clark Joe. God, you know, he has the great ranting about God. Now, God is good as dead. Just, it's a great performance. There's more to it. And there are choices being made. Alright? And, and if those choices don't work for you, I get that. This isn't about forcing you. I'm just saying, you know, if you haven't thought about that, what we think about it? If it doesn't work for you, it's all good, man. Now, sort of the... Uh, well, we're getting close to the finale. I told you we were deep diving. Martha. I'm so fucking tired of hearing about Martha, but that's why I'm going to deconstruct it. Alright? So, most of us 
listening to this probably usually listen to the wrestling content. So we're all wrestling fans, right? So what happens in your head when I say this? Elizabeth! Elizabeth! Do you think of Randy Savage proposing to Miss Elizabeth? Yes, you do. You think of that very specific scene, that very specific moment in your life, that very specific part of the story. Now, Bruce Wayne's life, while a story to us, is not a story to him. And we established in the very opening that the last words that Bruce Wayne, like I mentioned, a man who is so traumatized by this that he dresses like a bat to fight crime because his parents were murdered in front of him, the last thing he hears his father say is an anguished plea for his mother, that being Thomas's wife, Martha. Now, flash forward like 40-some-odd years or whatever, uh, Bruce Wayne is uh, about to murder a god. He's already fucked up in his headspace. And then this god that is on death's door utters to Bruce his father's last words. And, and I'm, not try- I'm not trying to sound like, uh, you, know, it's, you know, that's it. That's his father. And I don't like to use the word triggered, but I'm going to use it just to sort of explain Batman's uh, reaction. Why did you say that name? Like, what? Like, first of all, it's the last thing he expects to hear, ever. It's the last thing he expects to hear while killing a god. And it's the last thing that he expects this god to say. This realization, when Lois Lane runs in and says, why why did you say that name? It's his mother's name. It's his mother's name. The easy write-off gag is, oh, your moms have the same name. Like, that's the big gag. That's your big SNL sketch moment. Okay? That's not what they're trying to get across. It's the context and meaning to the character. The revelations that he gains from this. This god that I'm about to kill is a man. A man with a mother and a father. And with this God's last breath, he has asked me to do the one thing that I have never been able to do or will be able to do. Save Martha. Brings her back down to earth if you're the Batman. The death of Superman. The storyline that pretty much got me into comics. It's amazing. And it's preceded by the Trinity fighting, finally getting on the silver screen and fighting together in all their glory against Doomsday. Superman, of course, dies. There's the haunting score. Ugh. I love it. I, I, I tear up almost every time, no matter how many times I've seen it, and it's the score's fault. It's specifically when Batman like walks out of the shadows with the burning crosses or debris behind him, and it's like, Uh, I can't handle it. Um, The funeral kind of gets me too, but I I more so love the commentary that it says about us as a people. Like, as a collective nation, we choose to bury the Superman like he's a soldier. We found God. We spoke to him. He tried to show us the way, but to us, we bury him like he's just... And I'm not throwing shade at soldiers, okay? But uh, I I just... I, I. I just, we don't know any other way. Like, we don't have anything that truly unites us. We don't have belief systems that unite us, which is good. We should think differently. I'm just saying, like, we, we really aren't a, a collective species together. And, and, and that will come 
you know, in the third part of the trilogy, hopefully. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we just can't seem to get it right. Luckily, though, those who knew him as a man bury him as a man. And we're left hoping, wondering, you know, could Superman come back? But, but a deeper, darker threat looms. Batman lets us know that men are still good. And we fade. Let's talk about Justice League. Well, it starts with that fantastic uh, footage of the kids interviewing Superman. They're like, Superman, do you fight a hippo? I don't have a record scratch sound, but that's what we would play here. All right. Obviously, Justice League does not exist in this dojo. We're just talking about Zack Snyder's Justice League. That's it. I'm not going to dupe in any more thing. Uh, Superman is dead. God is dead. And truths are now revealed to the people of the Earth. Amazons, Atlanteans, Lanterns, the new gods, metahumans, it's true. All of it. Just like Harrison Ford said in that Force Awakens trailer. Who can protect us now? What will we do? Mankind aware of the imminent threat and coming looming from Darkseid, the new gods, Steppenwolf, all that jazz and what have you. Who can protect us? Well, Zack peels back the layers to this. And shows us who will protect us, but also contextualizes why. Who rules this world? I guess technically mankind does, right? Now we can just go with this. This is the thesis of the movie. Mankind rules the world. So who can defend us from not only these new truths, this frightening information, and the horrifying aliens that are coming? Who can protect us from this? Well, mankind can, right? So we start with Batman, the god of mankind. I told you, it all comes back. We've got all these different gods on the Justice League roster that exist to solve a very specific, or point out a very specific problem with this planet, and uh, how they could destroy it as well. So so you gotta, you gotta go with that. Uh, why is Batman the god of mankind? Well, how does mankind define its power structure or control structures? Wealth, strength, intelligence, influence, the drive to do things. Um, between his two personalities, Bruce slash Bats has all of that. Mankind has to protect us from the truth or the threat of apocalypse, and he's only a man. But he can go out into the world and uh, you know get the band together, if you will. It's not only the holy quest that God gave him. He, he made a vow to God on, the, on his grave, on the grave of Kal-El. So who does he start with? Aquaman, the god of the earth. Earth, you say? I thought he was the water guy. Well, you know, I am talking about the planet that's like 70% water and what have you. <laughs> but Arthur Curry, Aquaman, is a man of two worlds. Humans, Atlanteans. He is uninterested in protecting either of them. Why? Well, from a metatextual or a subtext standpoint... Uh, what have humans done to the Earth lately? Well, that's pretty self-explanatory. If he's the god of the Earth, if he's the one that's truly supposed to rule over the oceans, you know, that that's the planet, practically. Okay? Uh, why would I help the humans? They've destroyed the Earth. Well, why, why would I side with Atlantis, then? Because if I'm not siding with the humans, I'm siding with Atlantis. Well, why does he hate them? They took from him his opportunity to be human. They destroyed his family. He has zero reasons to give a shit. However, protecting Atlantis would have been the duty of his dead mother. Not actually dead, but we're not talking about Aquaman here yet. And, flip side, if humanity dies, his father dies. He's forced into action, 
And these actions, as a consequence of that, will allow the Earth and all of the bullshit upon it to continue existing. It solves absolutely none of his problems on a personal level. And it will allow humanity to exist and continue to destroy the planet. It will allow Atlantis to exist and continue to destroy his humanity. And it is the perfect allegory for human existence. Success, winning, getting through it all is a continual state of neutral. And that is what Aquaman lives in his everyday life, at least until he finally figures things out in his solo movie. Uh, people often ask me why Aquaman's my favorite character. It's a pretty big part of it. He sort of represents the neutrality of existence as he's constantly at war with himself. Wonder Woman, the goddess of the heart, the goddess of the soul, and it's not just simple because it's the girly thing. Please don't take it that way. Wonder Woman's not a simple character. However, whenever she dabbles in the lives of humanity, she inspires the best in us, in our hearts. Uh, why can't I cross no man's land in my solo film? It's crazy. It's suicide. Sure it is, but it's also the right thing to do. And it's necessary to do. So she does, and the troops follow her, and they succeed. She blindly believes that right is right and wrong is wrong, but not in a way that's indicative of simplicity or a way that signifies weakness within her or anything like that. She inspires Cyborg in this film. More to come on that. Uh, she inspires him out of apathy. She's fundamentally against the resurrection of Superman because it's unnatural or inhumane. Aquaman's also skeptical about this because on Earth, we live, we die, we return to the Earth, etc. Uh, and they're, they're, you know... It goes in with their godhood, if you think about it. Uh, she's also the only member of the team that can create life, which is, again, perhaps an influence into her line of thinking about the resurrection. But almost because of this, she's the best position to value this life. And when she rejoins humanity, she becomes more powerful than ever. The Flash is the god of time. Barry Allen is lost. He can't stop. But he is the living embodiment of time. Every second of our existence is possibility, if you think about it. Every moment that we or you have sat here talking into this microphone or listening to me talk about this is now gone. It's not coming back. And if you could exist outside of those restrictions, how could you possibly relate to anyone or anything? Uh, when he is focused, his abilities are harnessed. Uh, when time is focused on, he's controlling it. You know, it's sort of like, how do you exist as a normal person when you could control time? It, it's that simple. And it sounds a little goofy when you say it out loud, but it is what it is. And that the, the speed of force scene at the end of the film, where he does finally turn back time. You know, this movie came out in March of 2021. It's a real shit time. And I sat in my house, quarantined, detached from real existence, watching time pass me by, time that we can't get back. And all of a sudden, this movie I thought I would never see, that I clearly care about, I'm sitting watching it, and The Flash is so awful in that Justice League cut. And here he's running back time, the score peaks. I, I, I don't know. It gets me every time. Cyborg, the god of change or knowledge. Victor Stone is a brilliant man. He's an amazing physical specimen. He's kind and he does what's right. He then becomes a machine. A machine capable of managing finance, gathering information, launching weapons of mass destruction. A machine capable of flight. Now all these machines 
exist in our society with us, with man. However, these capabilities consume Victor. He no longer sees the humanity in himself. He has to learn to balance the machine and the man. Well, sure, my phone is awesome. Look what it can do. Look how connected we are now as a people. Uh, but look what we have to, ga- uh, to give up to gain this power. I find it quite poetic that only at the end of the film, when he finds the man at the heart of the machine, he is able to save all of us by separating the mother boxes. Plus, thank God for the Snyder Cut for rescuing Cyborg. He's so good. Uh, Maybe the best part of the entire thing. Cyborg's narrative is fantastic. But in the end, however, without guiding principles or a beacon to you know, send us along the way. Uh, mankind, our planet, Earth, our hearts, our souls, time, knowledge. What do we really do with it? How do we know how to use it? Well, we have a leader. Superman, the god of gods. Enough said. Enough said. In the end, these all exist uh, as three separate films, but as one long narrative that reaffirms my viewpoint on these characters and and why I love them. And if I didn't say it enough, the last thing I'm going to make very clear is they all have really, really fucking good scores. I love this music. And that being said, folks, I appreciate the indulgence there at the end. That's going to wrap up the very first episode of Top Man. Uh, And, you know, as said... We'll continue to give our lists with a little mini deep dive. Probably not as long as this was. This was very long, and I apologize for that. But, you know, when am I going to get the... Well, I guess I could make the opportunity to talk about it anytime I want, but I wasn't going to throw it away. And now I've said my piece, and I'll never do another show about these movies again. I, I really feel due at peace, so I appreciate the indulgence. Um, as always, like I said, thank you. Please subscribe to the Aqua K feed so you get notified whenever new content drops. I'm Johnny C, and a winner is you.